American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Like, I remember how funny it was. Like when you and I were young and we were still like, you know, partying and hot and heavy and liked all kinds of stuff. And uh, and we'd go out to eat with my dad and the only thing they seemed to talk about or care about was food. <laughs> and they just couldn't wait to talk about desserts yeah. and yeah, I remember that. restaurants and yeah. remember what food they got here, what food they got there, what food they got everywhere. And you were like... Stepdad, your stepmom and dad only talk about food. <laughs> Kicking the heck out of her. She's fighting herself. Um, but now I get it. I'm like, yeah, I can't wait for the next meal every time. Like, I just can't. I'm just like, Roll snacks it. are delicious. I know. I gotta stop buying so much junk food. I know. I know, but they're so great. Like, I can't. I just was, I just had some. Doritos, regular Doritos that were just a little bit left in a bag. And so yeah. I was eating those last few where all the flavors are in the bottom of the thing. Um, and I'm just enjoying the flavor. And I was just, you were describing what you're going to make for dinner. And it's hors d'oeuvres for dinner night, which sounds exciting. And it's, I can't wait for that cherry barbecue meatballs yeah. you're going to make. Cherry chipotle barbecue. Meatballs. Cherry chipotle meatballs. Yeah. Oh, it just sounds so good. We'll uh, see. We'll hope. We'll keep our Maybe it's crossed. terrible, but so picturing things like I can't wait, like in the morning, sometimes I can't wait. Like even before I go to bed, sometimes I can't wait for coffee the next day. Mm-hmm. Like I love coffee that much. I love the flavor. I love, especially when we get homemade beans, which I know you bought a bunch of grounds, but when you do homemade beans, I grind them in the morning. They taste so good. I can't wait for just sitting down and drinking some coffee in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I drink too much because uh, it's so good. That's one of the best things is drinking coffee. So I love it all day. So I know I need to drink less. And so I found this thing called Magic Mind, which is it's got all kinds of benefits. But one of the things is it replaces my coffee. I drink less coffee and I drink this tiny little, you know, you drink a cup of coffee. It takes me, you know, 15, 20 minutes because I sit, I sip it. It's hot and whatever. It's delicious. Uh, but this little... Magic Mind, it's a little shot of delicious nootropics and things like that. And it cuts it cuts down like two cups of coffee for me. I don't drink because I drink this. Um, so That's I'm less, so good for you, too. Yeah, so it's better not to drink so much. I still like coffee. And, yeah, and so Magic Mind is a sponsor of our podcast, too, which is great. It's this little tiny green drink. It tastes pretty good. It's like apples concentrate, but it's got all kinds of healthy supplements and nootropics are the big thing so i take it really because i've noticed i drink less coffee and then i'm less nervous and i don't have a big crash and it helps me focus and i have so much i'm working on right now i've got a big comedy festival i'm planning and doing all this research for this podcast and it really helps so 
I don't take Adderall or anything for my ADD. Uh, it's true. I can attest to that. So this helps. Not that it is. It is not. You know, a diagnose. You know, it's not a medicine for ADD, but it does help. It gives me energy. Helps me a little focus, and it helps me drink less coffee. And so some of the things I guess it's got in it is lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms. So that was a big thing. I was looking for something with mushrooms anyway. Yeah. And these guys stumbled upon because there's all these mushroom drinks you can drink, like mushrooms, coffee and stuff. Mm -hmm. People talk about just for this. I think it's a special kind of mushroom that people. That's what you like, the special kind of mushrooms. Yes. Make you hallucinate. But no, these are mushrooms that don't make you hallucinate at all. They're just really healthy for you. It's real natural. I love natural stuff. Like I dr I make smoothies with like spinach in them just because I know I'm supposed to have greens and I don't eat them. Yes, so that's true. I I'm trying to put more natural stuff in my body. So some other things, uh, ashwagandha and rhodiola rose rosea, whatever that is, but it's supposed to decrease stress uh, and reduce reduce your anxiety, which we all have now mm -hmm. thanks to the pandemic. That's right. Anyway, so I would recommend it. I think it's great. I think you should check it out and. Thanks for listening to American Timelines. You can get a discount code, wow. uh, a subscription. So you get a subscription, they'll just mail it to you. That's a cool thing. They just mailed me a box of it. And go to magicmind.co slash ATL. And the discount code is ATL for American Timelines. ATL is your discount code. Go to www.magicmind.co slash ATL. And, uh, you know, tell them American Timelines sent you. That's how you tell them by putting in and the code. And check it out. Check it out and see if you like it. And if you do like it, let me know uh, if you like it too. And uh, if you send me uh, a clip on Twitter at History for Jerks or Joe at History for Jerks dot com, you can email me a little video Snapchat of you saying, hey, yeah. The, or I'm not or on the, the WhatsApp snaps. Or I'm not the... on the snaps. I'm not on the snaps. Chats. Tribal is the new one. But we're on Face. It is. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the liberal version of Facebook. It's called Tribal. Oh my gosh! Like, isn't Facebook already liberal? No, I guess there's plenty. It's of not. It's there. very conservative, actually. It is. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, we're all in echo chambers on Facebook. Yeah, you are in echo chamber. I don't. I haven't been getting on Facebook lately. It's just. I just go for my groups. So that said, anyway, I love all of you listeners and try Magic Mind, everybody. It's pretty cool, and my name is Joe, and they support us. And shout out to Sebastian. You don't, you don't have to come up with a jingle. I'm sure they would rather you not. Probably. Yeah, they probably would like that. So, anyway, with that, we never said welcome to another episode of American Timelines. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. Yeah, we probably should have said that welcome already, but we didn't. So, and we are going to jump right in. We have the last two months of 1955, and we have more civil rights, and we have more uh, suspicious murders, probably. I have some game show stuff that I'm going to talk about. Oh. Um, just a little preview. Uh, so let's jump right into it. I don't have a lot of stuff. I got one major thing, and you got one major thing, right, Amy? Yes. And your thing happened on November first, nineteen fifty-five. It was the very first day. Oh, so that I'm first. Talk about. So you're first. We're gonna just go right up front with you. All right, everybody. I'm gonna talk about a a plane crash. Ooh. Yes. And yeah, I usually talk about plane crashes. My sources are. You guessed it. Another episode of. A Crime to Remember. Crime to Remember must be a good show. I, a Crime to Remember it. must have done a season 
1955 yeah, is really what, got, yeah. what must have happened. And, you know, I found a good source in that, so I just kind of run with it. All right, so this uh, Longmont, Colorado is where we, where we Longmont, are. Longmont, L-O-N-G-M-O-N-T? Yes, okay. up the stage. Longmont, Colorado. So Do you know what the local high school is and what their team colors are and notable alumni of that school or anything like that? No, and let me tell my story. Okay, I'll let you tell your so, story. So... In Longmont, Colorado in 1955, an airplane fell from the sky. Soon a search party was formed. Okay. It was night before they began the search. There wasn't a single person for miles who wasn't aware of the explosion because it was so massive. I bet it was so loud. People had debris cascading onto their property. Seats with people in them were falling from the sky. Luggage and seats fell from the sky. Huge pits filled with fire from the engines burned for hours and hours. Oh, my god. So this is where, you know, it's kind of like a root. Rural, 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 rural area. Okay. So it became very evident early on that there was not going to be any survivors. Yeah. As they would find the bodies, they would station a man with a flashlight to indicate where a body was in the field, right? Yeah. Pretty soon, the entire field was filled with points of light. Oh, my gosh. The flight had 44 people on board, 39 passengers and five crew, and everyone was killed. Oh, my gosh. Poor people. So United Airlines at the time was airing some commercials that said... Compare the fare, you'll go by air. Okay. And they were trying to lure people away from train travel. Oh, okay. A lot of the people on that plane, it was their first flight ever. Well, yeah. I mean, it was the 50s. Yeah. And flying was new. Brand I gotta new. Say, I don't know that I would be eager to get no, in a plane. Like, I know. I, I'm already not that eager to get in a plane. I mean, right. I will, but I'm not as worried as the 50s. It's like a new thing. Are right. you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. No, I don't want to do that. So. Like, um, I'm not going to be the first guy to do teleportation when they invent that. Because right. the first guy is going to end up with a foot where his wiener was the first time he teleports. I don't know why we're talking about teleporting right now. Sorry, because that's okay. going to be the next thing. All right. So a lot of the people on the plane, this was their first flight. Yeah. Some of the passengers were stewardesses that were traveling on their own. Mm. One named Sally Schofield. She was a young stewardess from Denver. Oh, there was also Don White, who was a co-pilot. Uh, brought we in lost at the Don last White minute. then? Yeah, he was a co-pilot brought in at the last minute because there had been a union dispute. Oh, that's always creepy. And it's one of those things where it's like if he hadn't, th- yeah, he wasn't supposed to be there, that kind of thing. Many of the passengers were traveling to visit friends and family, mm-hmm. husbands, wives, businessmen, and students. That's usually who's on a flight. There was a woman with a young son who was traveling, the only child who died. Oh. His mother, Helen Fitzpatrick, was taking her son to meet his father for the first time, who oh. was stationed in o- Okinawa. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's sad. so sad. In 1955, most people who traveled essentially wore their Sunday best. The goal was to look your best, not be comfortable back then. Yeah, you know, you, like and NFL every, teams you had a hat. Everybody still. had a hat. Yeah, everybody's got a fancy hat. That's what NFL teams do still. They all dress up to go on a flight for some mm-hmm. reason. Yeah. To go play a football do game. Do they really? Or, yeah. So the Weld County suits. coroner had to relocate his morgue over the, to the Greenlee Armory to handle all the dead. Ugh. And um, so, and then they talked kind of about the difference between. A plane that loses power in the sky versus a plane that um, crashes. Right. So if a plane loses its power, it's going to crash into the ground intact. Okay. Now, the crash itself obviously will scatter debris, but it will be a relatively tight 
area. Okay. Whereas if a plane explodes in the sky, yeah, right, it'll be everywhere. It's scattered over a broader area. The main the main debris field in this situation was about six miles wide. That was the main debris field. Okay, so, so this one exploded. Exploded in the air. In the air. Oh. The distribution of the debris on the ground really conforms to that of an explosion in the air. Oh, wow. The Civil Aeronautics Board used a method of reconstruction of the aircraft, and they divided the crash site into 1,000-foot by 1,000-foot squares, and then they assigned each square a number, and then they would gather the debris from each square. It would be loaded onto a flatbed truck, and then they used a large airplane hangar to reconstruct the aircraft and each square. Okay. So they could keep track of what of they what, found what was, and oh, what wow. was going on. Because they have to find out how, why, why it yeah, exploded. I yeah, figure out the, yeah. So then huh. they needed to look for c- the causes inside the plane. That's why they're reconstructing the plane. Yeah. Uh, was the explosion caused by the fuel tank? Well, at the time, aircraft was fueled by aviation gasoline, which was much more volatile type of fuel. Okay. An explosion will rip metal outward. Okay. And by close examination of the metal, they could begin to gradually narrow the origins so that they can say where precisely the explosion had occurred. Okay. So after about six and seven, six to seven days of examining the debris, they realized this was not caused by fuel. The explosion occurred in the number four cargo hold. Hmm. Now, that, yeah, that, the question becomes, is this an accident? Right. Investigators hypothesized there was maybe some volatile substance that had been negligently packed. Okay. There was no examination of the luggage at all back then, you know. Yeah, it was really only evaluated it. for weight. Yeah. There had been an incident in the 1930s where a plane had exploded because a sharpshooter who was traveling liked to use his own ammunition and he used nitroglycerin. Mm-hmm. And that made the plane explode. Oh, really? Yeah, so that had happened in the 30s. So they gathered all the pieces of the luggage compartment for examination. Okay. They noticed a firecracker-like smell that they could that they could detect on the metal. Oh yeah. The FBI forensic chemist concluded that it had to be dynamite. Oh really? I smell that kind of smell. It's like a sulfur smell. Yeah, I'll, I remember smelling it all the time in Chicago. At the train, the train would always smell like that because yeah. they would. I guess the metal breaking mm-hmm. real or old trains had such old. And then in Charlotte, too, I smell it a lot. And I'm always like, am I the only one worried about this? That's, yeah. Because that's a smell of like a bomb, too, I think. Yeah, it's sulfur. But, I know, you know, there's never an explosion. I don't know what it is. It's probably just buses and trains Yeah, and it stuff. could be. So they also found bits of copper wire that were not part of the airplane. Okay. This was the ignition source to start the dynamite. The plane had been purposely bombed. This was not an accident. Oh, this was completely unheard of at that time. Oh, now the they first... got to find out like who had the motive and who was on the plane, right? Yeah, like, this is the wants... first time this had happened in the United States. Really? Yeah, no one. November first, nineteen fifty-five. First time. Yeah, huh? no one particularly special was on board. It was really beyond anything anyone could imagine. Because I was gonna say like who's who, who can yeah. go out and kill scores of random people. It, that's in a Somebody's new category. Somebody's got to be on that plane. Yeah, so everyone was in shock. The Korean War had just ended. Okay. This thing happening in peacetime, it made no sense. Yeah. The first thing that came to mind was the unions. So there have been a lot of strikes lately. Oh, yeah, yeah. Colorado, okay. sadly, had a, has a very long history of extraordinary union violence. Okay. So they wondered if it was could be an inside job or there's someone getting even with the airline itself. Mm. On this particular evening, a flight engineer had crossed the picket line at Stapleton Airport. So that kind of okay. shows that tensions were kind of high. Yeah. So while they were investigating the union angle, simultaneously they were investigating the passengers to see whether someone wanted to kill someone else on the aircraft. Yeah. 
The FBI interviewed relatives and associates of anyone on the aircraft. They asked about marital difficulties, suicidal yeah. tendencies, business failures. Right. Did they have criminal records? Did they have enemies in right. business or family Anything relationships? crazy like that, yeah. Who would benefit materially from this crash is what they were looking for. Yeah. What do they say? Que bono or whatever? Doesn't that say who who benefits? Oh, I don't remember. I don't think I've heard that term. Que bono? I don't know. I'm probably being... I think you're thinking of Sonny Bono. No. Okay. Did anyone have huge insurance policies taken out was there another question. Yeah. So in those days, and this was really bizarre to me. In those days, you could buy life insurance policy from a vending machine at the airport. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, and everybody did it. Yeah, because they probably had them there for that. Yeah. They Who, thought you think were, of how smart the insurance companies were to do that. Let's put, put a vending machine anywhere you're about to do something get risky, into, like yeah. get on a plane. So the FBI pulled all the records of who bought insurance on the day of the crash. And how, how it wow. would work was you put your quarter in the machine, yeah. you sign the documents, then there was a place to deposit the signed documents. Oh, my gosh. In 1955, for many people, flying was new, and there was a lack of trust that flying was safe. I bet those vending machines made so much money. I know. Many of the passengers on the plane had oh, bought life insurance policies. Yeah. So it didn't narrow it down much. Yeah. But when they looked through all those policies deposited in the kiosk, nothing stood out. They were okay. all kind of just... Nothing seems weird. So the next thing to figure out is whose luggage contained the bomb. The FBI interviewed all the employees who handle luggage, and nothing seemed suspicious, but they did discover the most amazing coincidence involving a set of keys in Chicago. Okay. The baggage handlers were able to tell the FBI precisely what had been loaded into cargo pit number four because the flight came in from Chicago, and one of the baggage handlers there had lost his keys inside. Yeah. So... When the plane landed in Denver, they unloaded all the luggage from cargo four hold and moved it to other areas of the plane. And okay. they never did find the keys, but the, then they could tell exactly what was in there. But as a consequence, only items originating from Denver then were loaded into cargo hold number four. Because it had started in Chicago. Right. Now it's in Denver. Oh, so they, they had to, all the they had to move everything. So now the they keys. know only stuff originating in Denver was in that cargo hold. Okay. So the FBI learned that only three passengers in Denver checked luggage. Hmm. And only one of those checked the bag that was very heavy and okay. capable of having a bomb inside wow. that would blow up an Deductive airplane. Deductive reasoning at work, friends. It belonged to a woman named Daisy King. Uh-oh. The woman on her way to see her grandkids. Uh-oh. Now the ominous music should be coming in. Mm-hmm. Right? Once the FBI realized that only one passenger had checked luggage in that cargo hold with the capability to blow up an airplane, they started to focus on Daisy. Okay. The agents learned that the family had a drive-in business. Hamburgers, oh. hot dogs, Ooh, shakes, yummy. See, back to the food. Yeah, I know. I, can't, I want a hot dog right now yeah. and a shake. Initially, oh, hamburgers and shakes? They even oh, had yeah. car hops and stuff. Oh, so they man. That makes, a car hop makes me want a strawberry milkshake. Cruising was a popular activity at the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. So the FBI dispatched two agents to interview Jack Graham and Wait. Helen Hablitson. Wait a minute. That seems racist. Why would they dispatch Asians? No, agents. Oh, agents. They dispatched two agents. I didn't. I thought maybe they just dispatch Asian people. To Come on. That's, that's what it sounds Let's like you said. Together. All right. Jack Graham and Hel- Helen Hablitzel were Daisy King's two children from different marriages. So Daisy King has two children named, say it again. Jack K- Jack Graham. Jack Graham. That's a normal Helen name. Helen Heblitzel. Helen Heblitzel? Yes. That sounds like you're making up a name like Janine Graffalo and what? How to that's her name. Okay. So. I believe you. Um. She, They were from different marriages, though. So the daughter had come to Denver from Alaska after the accident. The the son was living with Daisy. Okay. Um, Jack and Helen, you know, so the FBI are interviewing them. They talk about... And the son was on the plane, too, with Daisy? No. Oh, just Daisy was. Just Daisy was on the plane. Let me turn off my... Yeah, you got to turn that off. 
All right. Um, Jack and Helen talk about the difficult financial circumstances that they endured as children. Mm -hmm. At the time, Daisy's husband had died in the 1930s during the depths of the Depression. Yeah, the Depression was rough. Daisy had no means to support her children, so she had put her daughter in a religious prep school and had placed her son in an orphanage in Denver so she would be able to work. He spent his whole childhood in the orphanage. Oh, boy. After Daisy's third husband died in the mid-50s, she was now in good in a good situation and decided to buy a house for Jack, who now had his own family, oh, okay. and create a basement apartment for herself. Okay. Daisy thought it might be a good idea to open a restaurant and have Jack run it. She was trying to make reparations now that she had money. Yeah, and felt bad about mm-hmm. their childhood, yeah. So when Helen is talking to the FBI about her mother, she was really describing a woman who could never be happy even when things were going well. Okay. She couldn't take enjoyment from those moments. You couldn't hug her or call her mom. Helen says that her mother had mood swings and that on one occasion she had attempted suicide. Oh, boy. Jack told the FBI that his mother was very definite about packing her own things that morning. She didn't want any help from anyone. The sister confirmed that Daisy had ammunition with her and that she was planning to hunt when she got to Alaska. Uh Jack drove Daisy to the airport that day. She was irritated with him because he was running behind and she was worried she was going to be late. They walked toward the departure area, and Daisy wanted to buy insurance, so she gave Jack several quarters, and he buys three policies, one in his name, one for Helen, and the third is for Daisy's sister. Okay. Each was for the lowest amount possible. Okay. The FBI knew Daisy had volatile moods. They knew she had attempted suicide. The FBI knew all this already about her? No, this is what they now knew. Oh, what they now knew. She had also talked about the idea that there could be a flight disaster. The plane may blow up, and she could be killed. So the FBI looked deeper, and it turned out this wasn't the first time that a bomb had exploded around Daisy King. What? In September of 1955, the drive-in that Daisy owned had had a fire with glass blown out into the street. Really? The restaurant had an explosion inside from a gas leak, and they had received an insurance settlement for damages. Uh Oh, yeah. So she'd done this before. The business was losing before. money, and Daisy blamed Jack. She wanted to sell the business. Daisy controlled all the financial aspects of the restaurant. So if they sold it, Jack would have been out of a job and all the money would have gone to his mother. So the FBI looked with more scrutiny at the value of Daisy's life. The approximate value of Daisy's estate in today's money would be nearly a million dollars. Helen and Jack would inherit it. Now it looked like Jack had a reason for wanting to kill his mother. The FBI took a closer look at Jack Graham. They discovered that Jack had recently been employed at the same insurance company that had insured the restaurant. Uh Jack and Daisy had a turbulent relationship. They would have yelling arguments in front of others often. Okay. At that point, they identified a few personal effects of Daisy King's and the debris from the plane. Among these was a faded newspaper clipping from 1951 that indicated that Jack had been involved in a check forging scheme. Daisy had paid some of the restitution and pleaded with the judge to go easy on him. Wait, they found this newspaper clipping? Yes, at the crash? Yes. It didn't burn up in the explosion? No, it must have been in her purse or something. Huh. So, okay. ultimately, he was placed on probation. So, if she hadn't <laughs> carried that clipping, they wouldn't have thought, I guess they were already piecing it together. P- looking at it together, yeah. So, the FBI go visit Jack again. They interview Jack's wife, Gloria, again, who corroborate Jack's timeline of that day. She mentioned that she saw Jack carrying a wrapped present before the flight, and remember Jack mentioning... A present that he was going to give Daisy. Ah, oh, ticking present with a clock yeah. sticking out of it. So a few days Wires. later, agents searched Jack's house, and hidden behind a piece of furniture, they found an insurance policy that had issued from one of the insurance kiosks from the airport for over $30,000. They found it behind the couch? Yep, with Jack Graham as the beneficiary. Oh, this man. was far in excess of Jack's claim that he had bought just the minimal amount of insurance. Yeah, that ain't right. In the garage, they also found spools of copper wires similar to the wire recovered from the crash site. It looks like we have found the 
culprit. Yeah. They located a hardware store located in town of Kremling, Colorado, and oh. the owner picked Jack out as the person he'd sold the dynamite to. Oh, wow. The police confront Jack with the evidence, and what Jack told the FBI was unbelievable. It was? Yeah. So 44 people died when United Flight 629 exploded in the sky. Just 12 days later, the FBI got Jack Graham to talk. He said it all started at the restaurant. Daisy was raising hell, and he had had enough. He used a six-volt battery and explosive caps to explode a dynamite, and he had to find a timer that would give him enough time to get the bag onto the flight and take off before it exploded. So Jack used an appliance timer, which had 60 minutes on it. So that's why he took his mother to the airport at the last minute oh, to get yeah. her on the aircraft. Yeah. When Daisy went to check in, the flight attendant had told her her bag was 30 pounds overweight, but Jack paid the extra amount so she wouldn't unpack her bag. Oh, man. They came very close to opening the suitcase, too. Oh, man. They would have found it. Yep. He would have in trouble. So why did Jack do this? At the age of 10, when his mother remarried in the 1940s, he thought, this is it. I'm going to be free from the foster home. But no, Jack was sent back. He, he had a mother who could now afford to have him in the home, but she didn't want him. A few years after that, Daisy came back into Jack's life, and now she was his landlord because she helped him buy the house, and she was living down in the basement. And then she also built the restaurant and had him run it, so she was his boss, too. Yeah. Um, Wait, so back up a little bit. Like, when he was, he thought he would be free of the, of the foster home, or the orphanage. Right. At what time, what age? When, but, he, when he was 10. Oh, when he was 10, they would let him go? Oh, but. His mother remarried, and she could afford to. Oh, she could back. afford him, but she kept him there because yeah. she didn't want him. I yeah. see. I see. Gotcha. Well, yeah, so All that right. would make you mad. Yeah. Upset. So, um, on the other him. hand, if Daisy were to die, Jack inherits. So, if she if she lives and she sells the restaurant, he loses his job. He loses yeah. everything. And yeah. If she dies, he inherits the restaurant and gains life insurance. Right. So he decided to kill his mother. So Jack was arrested. At the time of the explosion, there were no federal laws on the books that said that exploding a commercial airline is a crime. Oh, my gosh. No one had done it before. No one had even envisioned it. Yeah, they never thought of it. The DA of Denver decided to go with a single charge of murder with Daisy King as the victim. Oh, my gosh. At the end, even though he killed 40 other people? Yeah. Jeez. At the end, Jack Graham was found guilty of murder in the first degree. He was sentenced to death in the gas chamber. Ooh. He was executed in January of 1957, which was only 14 months at, that had passed since the crime. Wow. And just a few weeks after Jack was found guilty, on July 14th, 1956, yeah. Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a bill into law prohibiting the intentional bombing of a commercial airline. Oh, so good, yeah. Get that, get that in place. And... That's the story of the um, bombing of United Flight 629. The time bomb. Wow, a ticking time bomb. Boy, that's crazy. I never heard about that. I never knew that was a, I've never heard of that story. It's like, I you know, either. just because he wanted to kill his mom, so 40 some other people died because he wanted to kill his mom. What an asshole. It's like the family that was like the boy that was going to meet his dad for the first time. How awful. Oh, I know. That's the worst thing ever. Well, I've got some things in November and December. We got a very big thing that we all know happened in December, but let's get to it with some couple other random things. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. November 5th, 1955 is the date uh, Marty McFly returned back in time to Back in the Future. So there's that. Yeah. And then on November 13th, we have a first birthday. Kick it, Matt Truman, Ego Trip, featuring badass Derek on drums. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. That's right. Karen Elaine Johnson was born in Manhattan. You know who that is? No. 
She was born on November 13, 1955. You do know who it is. The daughter of Emma Johnson, a nurse and a teacher, and Robert James Johnson Jr., a Baptist clergy, clergyman. clergyman. Uh, I don't know why I said clergyman. Uh, she was raised in a public housing project, the Chelsea Elliott Houses in New York City. Her mother was a stern, strong, and wise woman who raised her as a single mother with her brother Clyde. She dropped out of Washington Irving High School. Notable alumni including Claudette Colbert, Sylvia Miles, and Joy Behar all went to the same school as her, her but she dropped out. And then she kind of got into some comedy, and she had a stage name taken from uh, her. She was quoted. This is her, see if you can guess her stage name. She was quoted saying she got her stage name because when you're performing on stage, you never really have time to go to the bathroom and close the door. So if you get a little gassy, you got to just let it go. So people to, used to say to me, you're like a whoopee cushion. Oh, whoopee Goldberg. Whoopee Goldberg. Her real name is Karen Elaine Johnson. Oh. She's not a Goldberg. She's whoopee Goldberg. Yep. Uh, that's why did she, her last name, she why is her last name Goldberg? Uh, so as Goldberg came, she said in 2011, she said, uh, it, it was just part of her heritage. Uh, she said, I just know I am Jewish. I practice nothing. I don't go to temple, but I do remember the holidays. So, uh, oh. she just felt like she was Jewish, but she, I guess was on that show. What's that show where that guy checks your DNA or whatever, mm. uh, Henry Louis Gates. And they said, she's not. Jewish at all, and she has no Jewish. Mm. So, but I, one time, Whoopi Goldberg said her mother uh, claimed she wouldn't make it in Hollywood because her name wasn't Jewish enough or something. So that might be why. Like, so nobody's oh. really exactly sure. I mean, I'm not really exactly sure. Yeah, probably no. There's probably an interview somewhere. Um, but in the '70s, she moved to San Diego, California, where she became a waitress, and then to Berkeley, where she did odd jobs. And a lot of people don't know she had acting students out in L.A., and one of her acting students was Courtney Love. So mm. there you go. Little connection there. And then on November 22nd, 1955, RCA Records make their best investment ever by paying $35,000 to Sun Records for the contract of one Elvis Presley. Mm. And then we got another birthday. Amy, Amy hates American science presenter Bill Nye mm. was born uh, in Washington, D.C. to Jacqueline Jenkins, who was a code breaker during World War II. Cool. His mom was a code breaker. And Edwin Darby, Ned Nye, who also served in World War II and worked as a contractor building an airstrip on Wake Island. Uh, and his dad was captured and spent four years in a Japanese prisoner of war. Oh camp, my goodness! Living without electricity or watches, he learned how to tell time using the shadow of a shovel handle. Oh my uh, lord! Yeah, spurring his passion for sundials. So uh, a little <laughs> couple things about Bill Nye's handsker you didn't know. Um, yeah. So, it, but Bill Nye, uh, he attended Sidwell Friends for High School. Mm-hmm. Sidwell Friends was the school he went to. Graduated in 1973. They were home of the Quakers. Notable alumni include Nancy Reagan, Chelsea Clinton, and Gore Vidal. Uh, anyway, he started doing stand-up comedy after winning a Steve Martin lookalike contact contest in 1978. Bill Nye. <laughs> so if you look up Bill Nye in the yeah. 70s, he does kind of looks, looks like, like a Steve skinny Martin. Steve Martin. It's kind of funny. So that's how he kind of got funny. And he was on a show called Seattle, a show in Seattle called Almost Live, mm-hmm. where somebody named him. 
Bill, not a science guy, because he corrected somebody's pronunciation of the word gigawatt. Uh, so there you go. That's Bill Nye. And then that'll lead us to, uh, okay, one more birthday and that's it, okay? Come on. We've got one more, just three birthdays and that's it. See if you can guess who this one is. William Michael Albert Broad was born on November 30th, 1955 in Stanmore, Middlesex, England. When he was two years old, he moved with his parents to the U.S. and settled in Patchog, New York, which is Patchog is an Indian name meaning patches of water. I guess it's somewhere near the Hamptons. But the family later returned to England, and he moved to the Worthing suburb of Goring-by-Sea in West Sussex, whatever that is, where he attended Worthing High School for boys. Notable former pupils include notable former pupils include Martin Lee, a former <laughs> tennis player, Simon Mayo, a former radio presenter for BBC. School color is purple. The motto is always pursue excellence. Anyway, in 1976, he joined the Bromley contingent of Sex Pistols fans a loose gang that traveled to wherever the band played. I have no idea. And his name is William. William gained a nickname when his chemistry teacher's description of him on his school report card was Idol, because he did Oh, Billy Idol. Yeah, Billy Idol. And then he joined a group uh, called, a retro rock band called Chelsea as a guitarist, and he wore glasses and had dark hair. But the... Frontman Gene October styled him and said, here, you need to bleach your hair, spike it up, and take those glasses off. And that's when he became Billy Idol. And then he uh, quit that band and co-founded a group called Generation X. And you can see, if you look up Billy Idol Generation X, you can see him in the 70s as a a lead singer of a punk band on some TV shows. It's kind of funny. He looks like a just little kid. It's not good. Yeah, but Uh, not. But he had some charisma. And that brings us to December December right. 1st, 1955 was a big day. Uh, that is when Rosa Parks refused to give oh, yes. up her bus seat to a white man in Montgomery, Alabama on December 1st, 1955. This event of peaceful protest was a catalyst for the civil rights movement in the U.S. So we're going to back up a little bit with Rosa Parks, um, give it a little bit of her backstory, because mm-hmm. there's some things about this that I didn't really know before, so I just kind of want to touch on this. So in 1932... Rosa married Raymond Parks, a barber from Montgomery. He was a member of the NAACP, which at the time was collecting money to support the defense of the Scottsboro Boys, a group of black men falsely accused of raping two white women. Oh, so so shit like that was just happening all the fucking time. So mm-hmm. Emmett Till is not a one-time thing. You know, it, it's very sad to hear about it, but it's one of the only ones we heard about. Again, remember, Emmett Till's mom made a, chose made a to, to have him, you know, mm-hmm. or else... You know, we wouldn't have heard about it. So there's just tons of these. Uh, But Rosa took numerous jobs, ranging from domestic worker to hospital aid. At her husband's urging, she finished finished high school in 1933 at a time when fewer than seven percent of African-Americans had a high school diploma. So that's a big deal. And then in December 1943, Rosa became active in the civil rights movement. She joined the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and she was elected secretary and continued as secretary until 1957. She was one of the only women mm-hmm. in the NAACP at that time, and they people believed women should be the secretaries. Yeah. Big thing. Uh, but, so that's the whole thing, too. She was an activist. She right. was part of the NAACP, and people did know that. So that's just a little backstory. That I just thought she was just one lady who had enough one day, but that was something. Mm-hmm. And then in 1944, in her capacity as secretary, she investigated the gang rape of Reese Taylor, a black woman from uh, Abbeville, Alabama, 
Uh, Parks and other civil rights activists organized the Committee for Equal Justice for Ms. Reese Taylor, uh, launching what the Chicago Defender later called the stronger, strongest campaign for equal justice to be seen in a decade. So she had, had some really meaningful work. She continued her work as an anti-rape activist five years later when she helped organize protests in support of Gertrude Perkins, a black woman who was raped by two white Montgomery police officers. Again, mm-hmm. whatever sh- they're blank, whatever they're accusing the other side of doing, they're complicit of they doing. They really themselves. are doing, and that's where you get it from. It's so yeah, but but shit like that probably happened all, all the, the time. time. Yes. Yeah. So in the 1940s, Parks and her husband were members of the League of Women Voters. Sometime soon after 1944, she had a brief job at Maxwell Air Force Base, which, despite its location in Montgomery, did not permit did not permit racial segregation because it was federal property. Uh, and so there, when she worked there, she rode on an integrated trolley there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when she spoke to her biographer, she said, you might just say Maxwell opened my eyes up a little bit. So seeing that there, it was possible to have yeah. integration and thing and not have a big deal, that probably kind of planted some seeds. And so Rosa Parks worked as a housekeeper and seamstress for Clifford and Virginia Durr, a white couple, uh, who were very liberal, and the Durs became her friends. And they encouraged, eventually helped sponsor Parks in the summer of 1955 to attend the Highlander Folk School, an education center for activism and workers' rights and racial equality in Monteagle, Tennessee, where she was mentored there by a veteran civil rights organizer named Septima Clark, who I'd never heard of, and so I started watching a documentary on her. She was amazing, too. So we should talk about Septima Clark at some point. Yeah. Anyway, in 1945, despite the Jim Crow laws and discrimination by registrars, uh, uh, Rosa Parks succeeded in registering to vote on her third try, which is a big deal. Yes. uh, Because they tried to make it so hard. They had literacy tests. They had poll taxes. Just whatever you, yeah. They would just turn you away. They just, you're black. Sorry. Yeah, and the the literary, literary, see tests white people didn't have to take and they right. called that a grandfather clause yep. which i just found out grandfather clause grandfathering you in that's a racist term that right. comes from that i just found that out the other day on tiktok mm-hmm. anyway back to august 1955 uh when uh, uh black teenager emmett till who we talked about extensively on this podcast was brutally murdered uh uh mm-hmm. while visiting relatives in mississippi Rosa attended a mass meeting at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery that addressed this case, as well as the recent murders of the activists George Lee and Lamar Smith. Uh, And the meeting featured speaker T.R.M. Howard, a black civil rights leader from Mississippi who headed the Regional Council of Negro Leadership. Howard brought news of the recent acquittal of the two men who had murdered Till. Mm. Parks was deeply saddened and angry at the news. Uh, particularly because Till's case had garnered much more attention than any of the other cases uh, that she had ever worked on, and yet these two guys still walked free. Mm-hmm. That according to Rosa's biography, rosaparksbiography.org. And so uh, now to get to the bus boycott, to back up a little bit on this, in 1900, uh, Montgomery had passed a city ordinance to segregate bus passengers by race. Conductors were empowered to assign seats to achieve that goal. So according to the law, it, so it wasn't just cut and dry that white people in the front, black people in the back. It's a little bit different. So according to the law, no passenger will be reco- required to move or give up their seat and stand if the bus was crowded and no other seats were available. That was the 
law originally. But over time and by custom, Montgomery bus drivers adopted the practice of requiring black riders to move when there were no white-only seats left. So the ordinance didn't actually say that anybody had to move, but they started just, Montgomery, they started doing that. Mm. Uh, And the first rows of seats on each Montgomery bus were reserved for whites. Buses had colored sections for black people, generally in the rear of the bus, although uh, black people composed more than 75% of the ridership. So they had to kind of move it around. The sections were not fixed, but were determined by placement of a movable sign. So black people could sit in the middle rows until the white section filled up, and then if more white people needed seats... They would move the sign. They'd move the sign and make Mm -hmm. people move, yeah. Um, Black people could not sit across the aisle in the same row as white people, even. So... uh, the driver could move the colored section sign or remove it altogether. If white people were already sitting in the front, black people had to get on board and pay the fare at the front, then get off and re-enter in the rear. They couldn't go. Because they couldn't go past the oh white people in the front. Oh, my God. Isn't that awful? Uh, that's according to David Garrow's book, Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Um, so for years, the black community had complained that the situation was unfair. Parks was quoted to say, my resisting being mistreated on the bus did not begin with that particular arrest. I did a lot of walking in Montgomery. That was in the New York Times. One day in 1943, Parks boarded a bus and paid the fare. She then moved to a seat, but driver James F. Blake told her to follow city rules and enter the bus again from the back. Uh, So when she exited the vehicle to go do that, he drove off without her. And she paid? Yeah, she had paid. And Parks waited for the next bus, determined never to ride with that asshole again. His name was James F. Blake. Fast forward uh, to December 1st, 1955. Rosa Parks had been working all day, and she boarded the Cleveland Avenue bus, a General Motors old-look bus belonging to the Montgomery City Lines. Around 6 p.m., Thursday, December 1st, 1955, in downtown Montgomery, she paid her fare and sat in an empty seat in the first row of back seats reserved for black people in the colored section it was near the middle of the bus and her row was directly behind the 10 seats reserved for white passengers initially she did not notice that the bus driver was the same man james f blake who had left her in the rain in 1943 that's what i didn't even mention left her was raining as the bus traveled along its regular route all the white only seats in the bus filled up the bus reached the third stop in front of the empire theater and several white passengers boarded Blake noted that two or three white passengers were standing as the front of the bus had filled a capacity. So he moved the colored section sign behind parks Mm. and demanded that four black people give up their seats in the middle section so that white passengers could sit. Years later, in recalling the events of the day, Parks said, when that white driver stepped back toward us, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. She knew what she was going to do, that according to the Chicago Review. So by Park's account, Blake said, y'all better make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. According to NPR, three of them complied, Park said. The driver wanted us to stand up, the four of us. We didn't move at the beginning, but he says, let me have these seats. And the other three people moved, but I didn't. The black man sitting next to her gave up his seat. Rosa Parks moved but toward the window seat. She did not get up and move to the redesignated mm. colored section. Parks later said about being asked to move to the rear of the bus, I thought of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 
after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store whose killers were tried and acquitted, and I just couldn't go back. Blake said, why don't you stand up? And Parks responded, I don't think I should have to stand up. Blake called the police to arrest Parks. When recalling the incident for Eyes on the Prize, a 1987 public television series on the Civil Rights Movement, Parks said, when he saw me still sitting, he asked if I was going to stand up, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. I said, you may do that. During a 1956 radio interview with Sidney Rogers in West Oakland several months after her arrest, Parks said she had decided, I would have to know once and for all what rights I had as a human being and as a citizen. In her autobiography, My Story, she said, People always say I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. Wait, she said, sorry, she was quoted to say, People always say I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being an old lady. I was 42. (laughs) The only tired I was was tired of giving in. Yeah. When Parks refused to give up her seat, a police officer arrested her. She asked, why do you push us around? She remembered him saying, I don't know, but the law is the law and you're under arrest. She later said, I only knew that as I was being arrested, that it was the very last time that I would ever ride in humiliation of this kind. Parks was charged with a violation of Chapter 6, Section 11, Segregation Law of the Montgomery City Code. Hmm. Although technically she had not taken a white-only seat, she had been in a colored section. She was bailed out of jail that evening by Edgar Nixon, president of the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and leader of the Pullman Porters Union, and Clifford Dahl, her, or Durr, sorry. Uh, Parks did not originate the idea of protesting segregation with a bus sit-in. No. Uh, those preceding her included Bayard Rustin in 1942, Irene Morgan in 1946, Lily Mae Bradford in 1951, Sarah Louise Keyes in 1952, and the members of the ultimately successful Browder versus Gale 1956 lawsuit. So there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that we need to remember and and uh, talk about. So then December 5th, the historic bus boycott begun, begins in Montgomery, Alabama. They denounced that they were going to do it on December 4th mm-hmm. uh, at, at all the black churches in the area on the Sunday. Uh, and a front page article in Montgomery advertised help... Uh, in the Montgomery Advertiser, helped spread the word. At a church rally that night, those attending agreed unanimously to continue the boycott until they were treated with the level of courtesy they expected, until black drivers were hired, and until seating in the middle of the bus was handled on a first-come basis. The next day, Rosa Parks was tried on charges of disorderly conduct and violating a local ordinance. The trial lasted 30 minutes after being found guilty and fined $10 plus $4 in court costs. That's the equivalent of $142 in 2021. Mm -hmm. Parks appealed her conviction and formally challenged the legality of racial segregation. Uh, In a 1992 interview with National Public Radio, she was quoted to say, I did not want to be mistreated. I did not want to be deprived of a seat that I had paid for. It was just time. There was opportunity for me to take a stand to express the way I felt about being treated in that manner. I had not planned to get arrested. I had plenty to do without having to end up in jail. But when I had to face that decision, I didn't hesitate to do so because I felt that we had endured that too long. The more we gave in, 
The more we complied with that kind of treatment, yep. the more oppressive it became. Um, so they they did the boycott, which I never really heard. Like, like did it work? Yeah. And so in the end, black residents of Montgomery. It was over a year that yeah, they, they did Yeah, they continued that. it for 381 days. And it was a big deal because they they didn't have any other way to get to work. A lot of them walked 20 they miles. Would, yeah. They would walk 20 miles to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, but the whole black community banded together and did it's this. It's amazing, yeah. And it, and it changed the law. We need... At the end, it changed the law because yeah. the, the, the the city buses couldn't take it. They they needed the black citizens' money. Yeah. So they had to end up it changing it. It was so it. smart that they did this. Dozens of public buses stood idle for months, severely damaging the bus transit company's finances yep. until the city repealed its law requiring segregation on public buses following... The Browder versus Gale case uh, that said it was unconstitutional. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the story of Rosa Parks and the awesome. uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. And I got a couple little tiny things, and we'll finish up December, and we'll be done. I with just want to say, yeah, it must imagine how infuriating and dehumanizing it is. Yeah, to be told that you now have to get up to lose your seat because you're not as good as because now the white people are here oh yeah it's my awful. god how do they not want to destroy us all that's the crazy thing is and i think that's that's why so many white people it's the white guilt and they they wouldn't do the same in the same way right like they would want revenge yeah and they would want so they assume that, that they but, yeah they is they ascribe that to yeah, I just the black people. It's, I can't even imagine to feel like be told that, and to be told you can't even walk past them, get on the back, you know, get off in the front and go back in the. I mean, just outrageous. Just it's it's unfathomable. And it wasn't that long ago, folks. It wasn't, and we're dealing with years and years of fallout from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what our country started with. It's just so ingrained in our society, and it's just such an awful, awful thing. And I, people need to. It's realize the source of it's, the. Pro- yeah. I'm quick plug for a book. Okay. Um, it's called "The Sum of Us." S U M. The sum. S U M. Of us. Okay. And it's about racism, and it's wonderful, and it. Who wrote it? Heather. Oh, now you'll have to look it up. Heather Cox Richardson. No, no. You're always talking about her. Some of us. Okay. Some of us, racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together by Heather McGee. And she really lays out the the costs of racism in our society. And it's okay. fascinating and because we're, it's set up like a zero-sum game. We should get a hold of Heather McGee and see if she'll no, say she's, something. No, she's very, very successful. Oh, she's too successful for us? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a, I mean, we had, uh, I talked to a uh, poet laureate. Uh, couple weeks ago it's true so you never know okay that's awesome well good good plug um so let's talk about some random bullshit to kind of cleanse our palate since that one was very sad very sad it's it's not gonna take long Mm. it'll just take like okay another 30 seconds or a minute i can do it december 6th the new york psychologist joyce brothers wins the sixty four thousand dollar question game show did you know that oh my goodness no and her topic was boxing uh, Wait a was, minute, Dr. Joyce Brothers? Dr. Joyce Brothers was on a game show and won it. Oh, my God. And she was 28 years old, 
And you can see it on. She wasn't famous yet? No, no. She wasn't famous. She's kind of what launched her career. You can watch it on YouTube. Bill, who is Revlon's next guest? Pal, back for the third week on her climb to the $64,000 question is our psychologist from New York City, whose category is boxing, Dr. Joyce Brothers. Doc? Doc, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Hal. Are you all set to practice your psychology on me again? Oh, I wish I could, but I have enough trouble just practicing and it she, on myself. She's 28 years old. She looks the same oh as she God. does when she's 80. Yeah. But uh, at that time, her husband was making $50 a month as a medical intern at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, which was not enough to support themselves and their three-year-old daughter. Um, and so she decided to try to go on the $64,000 question. And she did. And the top-charting show had the largest jackpot of all quiz shows at the time. To become a contestant, she had to write a letter describing herself and her hobbies and why she'd make a great contestant. And she got an interview with the show's producer, and they looked at her qualifications. You mm-hmm. know, she, w- she was a, uh, a psychologist. You know, she had all the psychology right. expertise. Uh, so that she was not allowed to use her expert knowledge in that field. So they decided to try uh, to have contestants, you know, compete in fields they they didn't know anything about yeah so they thought it'd be great to have with gender roles at the time in mind they thought it'd be great to draw in viewers by having her you know a frail as they say a frail woman with the idea that she knew a great deal more than everybody about boxing a masculine field so um he said you know and she had time to study it I guess on it, but then she won. You can oh, watch her win, answer all these questions, and they they really gave her a curveball. They asked her all about boxing referees, and she like got oh them God. all. Right. Hello, Doctor. Would you read? Please? Would you read them very slowly, please? Like these, name the three referees that that were at these you know famous boxing Jeez. and stuff. And she just rattles them off like it's amazing. Yeah, they, they make her stand in a phone booth and answer the questions. It's really weird. Um, yeah. All right. And oh, and I didn't write down the birthday of this other one. I had a birthday, but I didn't write the oh, date. Darn. So Stephen Wright was born in December darn. 1985. Anyway, Stephen Wright went to the same high school as Amy Poehler, Burlington High School in Massachusetts, red and white and blue, home of the Red Devils. Amy Poehler and Stephen Wright went to the same school at different times. And then December 15th. Folsom Prison Blues single was released by Johnny Cash. Yeah, that's a good one. And it was the Billboard Song of the Year, 1968. I don't know how that happened. And then December 26th, we have an NFL championship at L.A. Memorial Coliseum. The Cleveland Browns beat the Los Angeles Rams 38-14. to The Browns defend their title and win their third NFL championship of the 1950s in a second straight route. I had to keep the last it. time they ever won. It was like one of the, yeah, the Browns were terrible forever, but they were good at one point, and I got to talk about that. So thank you for listening, Time Heads, thank to American Timelines. Yeah. Shout out to Magic Mind. Don't forget your code. You can also click the link in the description of the episode. Get your discount. Drink it's that delicious time. juice. It's a magic serum. Time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Get out of here, Chuck Berry, and I love you all, and we'll be moving on
Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.